We've been working through the book of Ephesians, and today we start chapter 2. The theme of Ephesians is, as we've described, is God in Christ in us, in Christ in God. It's kind of this circular uh, idea that I did some incredible art about, that God revealed himself to the world through Christ, and that Christ reveals himself through us, and we reveal, we, we in turn give glory back to Christ, which gives glory to God, and it's this figure eight type thing that happens. And today we're talking about the fall of Walter White. Um, uh, Walt is the main character in what some people say the greatest show that was ever on television called Breaking Bad. Uh, It's a very dark show. I'm not sure that I would recommend it for everybody. Um, But it paints a picture of the fall of man, basically. This this guy is a, a high school chemist that runs into some medical complications, and he starts cooking meth in order to pay for the medical bills. And he finds out real quick that he likes being bad. Uh, he, he doesn't admit that for, for quite some time, but he just likes the idea of, of doing what's wrong. Uh, it makes him feel alive. And, and so over the series, you get to see the fall of this guy. He just becomes uh, more and more evil is the word I want to use. He becomes a, a brutal man. And it, you see a progression of it. And Ephesians 2 kind of hints on this kind of progression that can happen in people's lives, and then it talks about a solution. And so in Ephesians 1, it talked about being adopted and being redeemed, and we talked about how both of those words are beautiful words, but they're also very disruptive words. Uh, adopt, an adoption always means something has been broken, something has been disrupted, and something has been torn away, and redemption is the same, same way. You're bought into something out of something. And so the illustration that we used, we talked about what is it that we're brought out of, And in Ephesians 1, it talks a lot about what we're taken into. Ephesians 2 starts to talk about what we're pulled out of. And and I mentioned a bunch of stuff. You know, that which is temporary, our frailty, our sin, despair, hatred, classism, and even the laws of cause and effect are part of what we're adopted out of and redeemed out of. But in Ephesians 1, it says that that God is unveiling His mystery. He's revealing to the world the mystery of His will. So you want to know what God wants, he tells you. In this chapter, Paul tells you what God wants. And it has a lot to do with you experiencing real life. And then it concludes with this statement that we haven't talked about yet. Uh, It says, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And unity is a word that our world doesn't understand at at this point. We are as disjointed probably as society has ever been, or at least it feels that way. And uh, disunity is kind of the the call of the day, and and tribalism is the call of the day. But what this passage says, the mystery of God's will is He wants to do something in you that brings unity globally. So it starts with you, and it makes a difference around the world. And so in chapter 2, he dives into what that means, and it starts off again with you. It says, but as for you, so the reader. So Paul's writing to a reader, and he says, as for you, and, and it's, it's kind of a hellfire and brimstone beginning of the chapter. Um, it, it talks about sin and transgressions. It says, You were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. And most scholars and most uh, biblicists, if that even a, is even a word, say that the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is the devil or Satan. It says, So, so uh, you followed the ways of the world and the devil. Uh, It's the spirit that is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. 
Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Now, some of you will find this the most boring thing you've ever heard in your life, and some of you will be fascinated. And as I mentioned a few weeks ago, the people who are fascinated are my favorites, and you're, you're good people. But I'm going to run through some of the words in this passage, because I, I feel like in, in Western modern culture, we've kind of lost a grasp on what, what some of these passages were intended to say because we place particular nuance on certain words. So we hear transgressions, and we think bad stuff. We hear sins, and we think evil things that people do. And I think, I think we've, we've lost definitions, and so therefore we've lost clarity. So I'm going to run through some of the Greek here, and I'm, I'm very open about the fact that I'm not a Greek scholar, but I am a guy that reads a lot. And if you, you don't have to be a Greek scholar to study the Greek scholars and learn a lot about the original languages. So that's where I'm at. If, if you are, are, are an expert in Greek and you say, well, that's not exactly how I interpret that passage, I'd love to talk to you. Uh, but I'm just going to, again, in this whole series, I'm sharing with you what these passages speak to me. And part of it for me is diving into what did the author actually say. In the autographs, what language was it written in and what did those words mean? I'm, I'm really particular about words. And so we're going to pick some of these words. And, and I apologize if this is difficult to read back there. It says, as for you, you were nekros in the Greek, in your paraptoma and hamartia, hamartia, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world. So, so it says uh, that, that in, in English is you were dead in your transgressions and sin. And then it talks about those who are apei theias, uh, and, and that was disobedient in the, in the English text. And then it talks about how all of those people are deserving of orge, which in English is wrath. And this is the part that I'm going to completely lose some of you, and so it just is what it is. But I'm going to define some of these words and dive into them deeper. So let's talk about necros first. And necros is the same root word in English that we get things like necrosis and necrotic and necromancy, which would be the magic of the dead. Um, it's, it's, it's about death, ne necros is. And as you see on this, it's, it's that which is without life. It's a corpse. It's it's kind of a nothing. It says, it says it's unable, ineffective. It's just, it's worthless. A corpse has no value. Necrotic flesh. So if you, if you get bitten by a uh, brown recluse spider, what happens is your flesh turns necrotic. It, it rots. And that flesh is no longer capable of having life. Those cells have to fall off. It's worthless flesh. And you have to go through the process of that flesh rotting and falling off. And this is the same root that we get the uh, necros is the same root of that idea. And then finally, it says unresponsive to life-giving impulses. You can't feed necrotic flesh enough blood to get it rolling again. It's just done. And so the passage talks about us being necros, and then it talks about us being paraptoma. And it, it, in, in the passage, it's trespasses, and we read trespasses as bad stuff, bad stuff that we did. But if you look back at the language and you look at the, what, the, what the word actually means, it's like a slip-up, it's an error, uh, it's, a, it's a lapse, uh, or it can be a lapse in judgment or a lapse in behavior, a false step, uh, and it's wrongdoing that can be relatively unconscious. So look at it this way. A trespass is you're walking in somebody else's land, and you may or may not realize it's somebody else's land, but either way, you're somewhere you don't belong. You're, you're somewhere you weren't supposed to be, and sometimes that's accidental, Sometimes that's purposeful, but either way, you need to get on the correct side of the fence. And so the, the, the volition, the will of it is still, there's still a lot of mercy in this word, paraptoma. It, there's a lot of mercy in it in that some of it could be ignorant. 
Uh, hamartia, which is the Greek, and if you read through the New Testament, almost every time that the English translates the word sin, it's the Greek word hamartia. And, and I'm not afraid to throw this out there. Anybody, any of you can go do your research on this word and find out that what I'm saying is true. We think of sin as the bad stuff that we do. That's not what, the, that's not what hamartia means. Hamartia is the tragic flaw of the protagonist in the story. It's the tragic flaw of the tragic hero in a tragedy. So Achilles is the example. Uh, Achilles' heel was his hamartia. He was dipped in the river Styx. He came out immortal except for his heel, which was covered by his mother's fingers. So his heel was his weak spot. His heel was his point of attack. His heel was the thing that could ultimately be his downfall. But it was, and, and, and that had nothing to do with his volition. It had nothing to do with his choices. It had everything to do with weakness and frailty. And so it, it's, it's, it, it, it's almost an archery term. So when it does come to action, it's, it's called a bad shot or missing the mark is what it literally means. So if I'm an archer and I take the shot and I miss, that's hamartia. I'm aiming for the bullseye and I just can't always seem to hit the bullseye, no matter how hard I try. That's hamartia. That's sin. And when you define that as such, things like original sin, things like uh, us, us being in, in born in the nature of sin, uh, tied into original sin, all of that starts to make sense. And so when you read this passage again and you understand those words, it, it, it shapes it out a little differently. You don't read it as hellfire and brimstone so much as it says, as for you, you were in kind of a place where there was no life in you. There's no life in you because of you're, you're in the wrong spot. You're trespassing. You're someplace you weren't designed to be. And it says, and you have these frailties and these weaknesses, and you're missing the mark. You're aiming for something good sometimes, but you're not always hitting what is good. And then it goes on to this, this next word, apetheios. And apetheios um, is, is more of what happens to Walter White. Apetheios is... Um, is, is kind of obstinance. And so in, in the passage, it says everybody is kind of dead, kind of in the wrong place in life, kind of missing the mark, but there are some who are Walters, who are Waltz. They're cooking meth and they don't care what happens. They, they, are, they, don't, they don't give a rip about much of anything. It calls them the sons of disobedience, the sons of apetheios. Okay? And it defines it as an uncompliant disposition and a decision to reject. So all of us have hamartia. All of us have transgressions and walk in the wrong places. All of us are in some sense dead and can't sustain life and don't respond well to life. But not all of us are obstinate in that. Not all of us are saying, I don't care about those things and I'm not going for those things. I don't, I don't care about anything. It, it almost, it, the word itself almost looks like apathy. Theos almost looks like apathy. And theos is the word for God. And I'm not sure about these roots, so don't hold me to these. But this is what goes through my head when I see it. I, I see it as apathy towards God. I don't care about God. I don't care about the life-giving flow of God. And it says that we live, it says though everybody is in the top three categories, but not everybody is in this awful category of not giving a rip about the top categories. And it, it, it seems to indicate that, but it, and it goes on to say, all of us, everyone, top three or four included, all of us are deserving of orge. And orge is natural anger or judgment. 
It's a solidification of what the beholder considers wrong, a swelling up to constitutionally oppose. And let me, let me try to explain what that means. So there's, there's an anger that's arbitrary. You know, if, if, if Seth says something to me, like right down here before the service we were chatting, and if he says, man, I hope this sermon was better than last week's sermon, right? He didn't say that. He thinks I'm awesome. But, and by the way, I love that you sit here. Thank you. You make me feel warm and nice inside. But if he says that to me, right, I, there, there's a natural offense that rise up. There's, there's like, why would you say that to me? But if I sit here and look at him and think, man, he's so good looking. Why can't I be that good looking? And I'm like, rah, 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 rah. That's kind of an arbitrary anger that stirs up in me, and there's, there's no cause for it. And this is not that word. This is not the causeless anger. This is, this is the consequence of something that has already been determined. And so it's, it's kind of like there's, there's a science to law. And, and if you go before a judge, the judge just can't hand down whatever sentence he wants. There's laws that have been, constru- have been scribed long ago. They have been constitutionally put in place. They're there for all to see, which are the limits that he is allowed to punish, right? That's orge. And so if you commit a misdemeanor, I've been doing a little bit of study on misdemeanors as I'm studying Ephesians 2, and there's several, depending on what state you're in, there's several classes of misdemeanors. There's class A, class B, class C, and in some states there's class D. Or there'll be class 1, 2, 3, and maybe up to 4. But depending on the extent of the crime, the, the judge is only allowed to hand down particular sentences. That's orge. That's the idea that what you do has consequences that have been written down. And that's just the reality. So a, a group A or a class A uh, misdemeanor might be assault with bodily injury. So I hit you with a hammer. I, I, I beat you with a stick. That's assault with bodily injury. Perjury, lying under oath. Unlawful possession of a weapon. So these are, these are fairly grievous crimes to be a class A felony. And you'll see that a class A felony has the greatest consequence, up to $1,000, and it depends on the state, but in most states, $1,000 and up to one year in prison. Whereas a class C misdemeanor might be littering, which I really honestly think they ought to just give people big spankings when they litter. I think you ought to, they ought to have like a spanking place. They just throw something out of your car, they just bend you over and spank you. That's just my opinion. That's why I'm not a, a, a judge or a, a lawyer. Trespassing, driving without a license. See, these are not cruelty-related. They're, they they're not grievous harm to another person. But societally, they're just not good ideas. And so it has, been cons- it has been scripted, it has been constitutionally set in place that if you do the bottom ones, the judge can only give you so much punishment. If you do the top ones, the punishment can be greater, as we saw in the list earlier. So when we're talking about orge, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about something has been constitutionally put in place already and that those consequences occur when you give in to your trespass, when you give in to hamartia, when you harden yourself up towards God. These natural consequences will occur. Let's talk about eating jelly beans. So I read How to Make a Jelly Bean. It's really interesting reading. Um, and basically, a jelly bean is sugar coated in sugar with sugar and some sugar on it. Refined white sugar. And it, it, they, they do it in different chemical processes to get the ooey gooey bite into it. So it's a little hard on the outside, 
uh, on the inside, and there, there's some starch involved. It's starch and sugar, basically. Now, sugar is empty calories. It's devoid of life. There is nothing good in a jelly bean. There is no good reason to ever eat a jelly bean. They taste good, yes, but as far as your health and as far as nutrition, there are other things that taste good that actually benefit you and give you life. So necros is built into jelly beans. All right, it's death. There's nothing, all it does is hurt your health. Now, am I saying you're going to hell for eating a jelly bean? No. I'm not even, I don't even want to hint at that. Ronald Reagan would have been long gone forever ago. I mean, there's people that love jelly beans, and I, that ain't my thing. You know, that's between you and God. But the point is, it's, it's empty calories. It's worthless, right? But you may find yourself being a jelly bean eater, right? You're trespassing in the realm of eating something that isn't so good for you. And it, uh, jelly beans could ultimately just be your downfall. I mean, it could be your weakness. You just love jelly beans, so you're eating them and eating them and eating them and eating them. And you don't give a rip. You're like, I don't care what these jelly beans do to my health. I'm eating the jelly beans. What happens? Orge happens. The consequences of eating death, eating empty calories constantly well up within you and crushes your immune system crushes your nervous system, crushes your digestion, and ultimately, literally, kills you. Now again, don't look at jelly beans and say, my pastor said you're going to die if you eat jelly beans. And Judgment and the wrath of God is coming. That's not what I'm talking about. But when I'm talking about hamartia and all these words that we translate as bad and wickedness, we need to, we need to shift the way we view them and see that God is for our best. God wants good health for you. So the alternative would be to find something that you enjoy and eat that, that gives you nutrition. Walt was dealing with money and his, his lust for money. Now, money in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But in and of itself, there's no life in it. There's no, all money does for you is provide other stuff that is important. The money itself, even the power that comes with money, we all recognize deep down inside that there's no real true life in it. And yet, sometimes we find ourselves trespassing in this area where material things become our all. I mean, they become all-consuming. They, they consume our minds and our hearts, and, and we pursue them. And they, they can even become our downfall. And, if that beca- and especially if you get to the point where I don't care what anybody, I don't care what happens to my family. I don't care what happens to my kids. I need more money, like Walt did. Ultimately, orge. Ultimately, that wrath, that constitutional thing there that is said, this doesn't give life, and if you pursue it, it ends in a poor place. That ultimately happens. It's guaranteed. By nature, it happens. Isolationism, thinking that you can do it yourself, that you, that you are what really matters in life, and that you don't need other people. Whether that comes from outside influence or not, ultimately, especially if you get to the point where you're like, I don't care. I don't care what other people think. I don't care to have other people in my life leave me alone. That ends in bad places. Orge happens. The, the natural constitutional judgment of those characteristics of yourself ultimately haunt you, ultimately cause problems. Um, tribalism, thinking that your tribe is the right tribe and everybody else's tribe is the wrong tribe. Everybody else is bad. Everybody else is lesser than you. Uh, there's cultures that propagate this idea. 
and, and all of us are tied to it in some way or another. We think that our circle is the good circle and those circles are the bad circles. And there's death in that. And if you trespass there, if you stay there and you allow that to become your weakness and you don't care about the other tribes, it ultimately ends in disconnection from people, a lack of love. It, it ends in, in all kinds of bad stuff. And you can go all and all and all down a list of what we would call sin or sinful characteristics. We, again, we need to redefine sin and look at it accurately. And you look at a list of all the stuff that, and some of this is stuff that comes straight from Scripture, and some of it is stuff that I think is just common sense. Hoarding, for example. Man, if you let that become your hamartia, and you, you say, I don't care what anybody else is think, I'm taking what's mine and I'm keeping it, that ends in a bad place. Drunkenness or cruelty or lying or gambling, all the, all the things that, we, you know, that a hellfire and brimstone preacher will get up and put on his sign. Now, he may have, a, 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 he may have tribalism in his heart, he may be thinking, you are the bad people, I'm the good people, and these are the reasons you're bad. And that can be nasty. But all of these things, Scripture doesn't point them out. And we don't think of them because we're mean or angry. We think of them because too many jelly beans corrupt the stomach. We think of them because if, on all of these, I mean, pick your poison, procrastination. Let's follow procrastination to the end result. And where does it end? Not a good place. And so all of the stuff that God wants to change in us, He doesn't want to change in us because He's the bad guy. Breaking Bad, I looked it up because I never knew what it meant. I always thought it was an interesting title to a show, but it, it means raising hell. So if, I, if uh, a guy might say, I w this guy came into the bar where I was at and he started hitting on my girlfriend and I about broke bad on him. It means I about made things bad for this guy. And so the title of the show, Breaking Bad, can be translated into Raising Hell. And so when we talk about all this bad stuff and we talk about orge, what we're talking about is all this bad stuff pulls hell into our lives. And you can see my sermon on hell to see what I, what I believe about hellfire and brimstone. That's, that's, that's for another day. But the point is that breaking bad, embracing this stuff, embracing our weakness, embracing our trespass, and, and eventually getting such a hard heart that we say, I don't care what you think, I don't care about God, it brings hell into our lives. So what's the answer? What's the solution? And thankfully, Paul gets there. So he says, but as for you, and then he goes through this, this diatribe on bad stuff. He says, but, there's a big but in this passage. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were necros in our paraptoma, even when we were dead in our transgressions, in our, in our, in our trespasses. And it's by grace you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the phrase you hear over and over and over and over and over in Ephesians is, in Christ, in Him, in Jesus. That that's the solution, that's the answer. In order that in the coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. There's in Christ Jesus once again. It's because of his great love. Let's look at some of these words. I'm sorry, it, it continues. It says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. I want to go back for just a moment because 
all the bad, because of all the bad stuff, we're deserving of orge, this constitutional judgment that, that is it's the cause and effect. We're deserving of cause and effect. But you'll notice Paul uses the word were. It says, you were, those who are in Christ, it says, were by nature do the consequences of your weaknesses and frailties and so forth. So that were means not anymore. It's done. It's over. And then he continues to talk about why. And let's, let's parse out some of those words. It says, because of his great agape for us, which is selfless love. It says, God who is rich in mercy made us zoe, which is eternal life. It's full, the fullness of life. Made us zoe with Christ even when we were dead, necros in paraptoma, our trespass. And it's by charis you have been sozoed. Now, we've talked about sozo in here, and I, again, I apologize for all this. If, if some of you are like, well, you just shut up. Uh, sozo is, again, it's soundness in every area. It's having the world down like the world is supposed to be. It's all is well. And it says it's by charis that you have that all is well situation. It's by charis that you have zoe, eternal life, life that bubbles in and out and goes into your past and into your future and fixes everything. Charis is the word that says does that. So it would be important for us to figure out what that word charis means because he says it again. He says, he might show the incomparable riches of his charis expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Can anybody maybe pick out a word that charis is probably the root for? Charismatic, it is charisma, it is. It's, it has to do with grace and charm and charity. That's the other word. That's right. And so I was thinking about these kids that are, are born with cleft lips and how there's medical missions that go around basically fixing smiles. And, and that's, that's kind of the word charis in a nutshell. It's, it's moving into a situation where I have strength, I have power, and I can help, and I choose to do so for no gain of my own. I don't, I don't get anything out of it. I mean, again, is altruism even possible? There's philosophers that fight all the time about, do you get something out of charity? Yes, you do. That's not the point. The point is, I didn't have to. I didn't have to go in and fix this kid's smile. I didn't have to go in and, re and repair his palate and help him eat well his whole life. I didn't have to do that. That's kind of the idea behind charis. It's charity. It's, and there's a sweetness and a charm to it. There's a loveliness to it. So that's where you get the, the, the root from charisma. Uh, charis is the same for charisma and charity. And in fact, in this passage that we're reading, the, the literal Greek word is charity, C-H-A-R-I-T-I. So it says, basically, by the charity of God comes fullness of life. And it says, it's that which affords joy, it's goodwill, it's merciful kindness. And so when you read these passages and you see it's by God's charity you have been sozoed. It's by God's charity that you have soundness in every area, that life is what life was meant to be. It comes as an act of charity from God. And then it says, We're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good agathos, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Agathos is, is to me, a combination of agape, that, that selfless love, and theos, that God. So it's, we were prepared to do selfless love on behalf of God. And it, so basically, if you sum up the whole passage, I've done some more art for you, because I can. On one side, you've got Breaking Bad. You've got this slippery slope that ends in a terrible place. It ends in, in Orge, which, which is my next slide, <laughs> conveniently enough. Um, 
So necros, death, paraptoma, trespasses, hamartia, sin, it all ends in orge, which is not the goal. Do you see that? Eating too, too many jelly beans, the sick belly, is not the goal of God. God's goal is that your belly would be healthy, so he says refrain from the jelly beans. So God says, don't do all this because that just brings something worse, which just brings you down this slippery slope towards that which is bad, which is not the desire of God. God's desire instead is charity. God's desire is charis. It's that you would have zoe life, sozo life, agathos, that you would be love of God to the world. And in order to do that, he reaches in. He reaches down. And he breaks down cause and effect. Whatever it was you did, no matter who you are, no matter what ugly, no matter how far Walt has gone towards breaking bad, there's no place where God says, far enough. Not in this life. There's no place where God says, okay, I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Instead, he's reaching, reaching, reaching all the time to pour out Zoe, to pour out Sozo, to pour out life, an abundant life. And so I drew another picture, which I just think is brilliant, and I'm surprised. I'll probably frame it and hang it on my wall. First off, I thought Karis should have long hair like Jesus did, right? He obviously has bulging biceps and abs, and he has baseball coach shorts on, and I have no idea why. But he's stomping on Orge, and I realize this is the dumbest thing ever. This is the blood of Orge spewing out. <laughs> yeah. It's, judgment is due. It's, it's natural. It's, it's coming. It, it's, we are not strong. We are not powerful. We are not capable. But the grace of God, the charity of God says, I will crush those consequences. I will break the chain and the law of cause and effect. I will break what has constitutionally been written as the end result of your behavior or personality or weakness or frailty or trespass or lapse in judgment or missing the target. That's what God does is he comes in and breaks that chain so that judgment no longer occurs naturally. But instead, everything turns around and goes in a completely different direction towards transformation like God. I heard this quote recently, and I'll close with this. When God flexes his omnipotent biceps, it looks like being crucified by his enemies for his enemies. God is for his enemies and goes to the ends of the earth to reach out to them, to make their smiles better to heal their cleft palate, to forgive the, to, 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 in, the, in the first part of Ephesians 1, it talks about his forgiveness being lavish. He stomps all over Orge. He says, you no longer have to face the consequences of whatever it was. He says, I can fix that. And that's the business that he's in.